You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to read first from the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, the verses 1 to 14, and thereafter from Matthew 6, the verses 19 to 34. We turn, first of all, then, to Proverbs 30, beginning at verse 1. The sayings of Agur, son of Jakey, an oracle, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal, I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One, who has gone up to heaven and come down who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands, who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me, if you know. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, or he will curse you, and you will pay for it. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful, those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth, the needy, from among mankind. Thus far, Old Testament reading. Then we turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And there the Lord Jesus Christ says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot... Serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, 
can add a single hour to his life. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let us turn to Lord's Day 42 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may. Deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, at the moment most of the news headlines have to do with Libya and with that bizarre dictator called Muammar Gaddafi. In his desperate bid to hang on to power, he will do almost anything, even shoot down his own people. And meanwhile, the world wrings its hands and tries to decide on what to do, if anything, about this humanitarian mess. But, beloved, while all of this is going on, there is another matter of even greater worldwide importance that receives very little attention. Well, now and then, some stories are printed about it and some documentaries may be devoted to it. But for the most part, it doesn't garner a lot of headlines. And what is it? What am I referring to? It has to do with corruption. Corruption is spreading around this world like a pandemic. In many countries, you cannot do business unless you grease the palms of local officials, bureaucrats, and politicians. In many places, policemen do not make enough money, so they supplement their incomes by threatening to charge people with bogus crimes unless they pay up on the spot. And in some countries, drug money virtually runs the economy. And in other lands, you cannot set up a company unless you deposit a huge sum of money into the secret offshore bank account of the local dictator. And meanwhile, the population at large grows increasingly more cynical. 
And when they do not have enough to eat or to live on, they take to the streets and they riot. And so what does all of this have to do with Lord's Day 42 and the Eighth Commandment? Well, take a closer look at the commandment. It is short, it's to the point, you shall not steal. But while the words used here are very, very few, the area to which they introduce us is very, very broad. And indeed, you can say that stealing actually is kind of here like a window into the whole wide world of economics and money. It has to do with a crime called theft, but it also has to do with commerce, business, wages, mortgages, stocks, bonds, properties, RSPs, investments, profits, taxes, and the list goes on and on. The reality is we could talk for a long, long time about all of the subjects that come under the heading of the Eighth Commandment. We could have the longest sermon series on it that you have ever experienced. We won't do that, however. But let's go back to the basics and to the commandment. And we do so this afternoon under the theme... Greed, graft, and gratitude. And first we'll look at the gift, secondly the curse, and finally the blessing. Well, beloved, whenever we deal with money and commerce, the best place to begin, as always, is with God. For who is the source, the origin, and the giver of all things? Who is the one from whom all blessings flow? It is God. It's the Lord our God. Psalm 24, which we have sung together, immediately comes to mind. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all that live in it. He created everything in the beginning. And he's been keeping it running ever since. And still today, he's the one who gives and who grants, who supplies and provides, who blesses and who bestows benefits. And now, of course, you all know this. At the very least, you should know this. This is one of those basic, obvious truths of the Christian faith, right? But yet, how often is this not forgotten? Unbelieving man ascribes everything to himself. He made it, he earned it, he owns it. It's all his to do with as he sees fit. Yes, and often even believing man acts in the same sort of conceited manner and with the same kind of crass approach. So this very obvious word is not out of place. It bears constant repeating, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. But still, beloved, that is not just a basic principle for us to embrace. There are all sorts of illustrations from scripture that show this to be true. Survey the Bible and what do you see? Who makes Job rich, poor? And rich again. Who fills Abraham's tent with silver and gold? 
Who turns Isaac and Jacob into rich patriarchs? Who gives Israel a land flowing with milk and honey? Who makes Solomon the richest king in all the world? What all of these illustrations and more show you is that while God is the source of everything, he is no cheapskate. He is not a Scrooge who hoards. No, he does not hesitate to say, to make some people, even a lot of people, very rich. So what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us first that being rich is not a crime. There are times when we who live in Canada and who have so much compared to the rest of the world feel guilty. Should we perhaps scale down, sell our homes and all rent modest apartments? Should we cut back on our wardrobes, our extras, our vacations and give the money to the poor? Should we not cash in our RSPs, our stocks, our bonds, our savings and give them away as well? My beloved, if being rich is sinful, and it's not just you and I who have a problem, then it's God who has a problem too. For is he not the cause of our riches? Is he not the great giver? All of that should make us think twice. Being rich is not a sin. Being rich is not unchristian. But then, beloved, while being rich, or while God makes people rich, let us also realize that God does not make all of his people rich. Currently, you know, there is a pernicious air out there being taught and promoted in many places to the effect that if you become a Christian, you will automatically become rich. It's a form of believe in Jesus Christ and you will win the lottery. Or become a Christian and you will hit the jackpot. And this particular approach is being used to sucker punch many people. In China, India, Africa, and many other places, so-called Christian preachers are urging people to turn to Christ so that then they will be on easy street. Getting rich, along with getting healthy and staying healthy, are the main drawing cards of Christianity. But on what is it based? Well, you might say on different things, and among them there is also, you will remember perhaps, that prayer of Jabez business. You can find it buried in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, the verses 9 and 10, where it says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory, 
Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. What has happened to this prayer is that it has become a formula, a template. Pray for God to expand your holdings and he will make it happen. Pray to God to live a pain-free life and he will make it happen. But what's forgotten in the process? It's something basic called comparing Scripture with Scripture. Beware the danger of constructing a universal principle on the basis of one isolated text or passage. Enoch walked with God and God took him away without seeing death. Is that a universal principle as well? You walk with God and you won't die? Samson repented, pulled down a temple, killed himself and a lot of Philistines. Is that also a universal principle? The disciples complained to the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus told them to fish on the other side of the boat. Is that also a universal principle? The point of all of this is that you shouldn't build any theology, no matter how attractive and enticing it may be, on just one text. And so where does that leave us? Surely with this, first of all, God is the source of all our riches. Secondly, God does make some people rich. And thirdly, God nowhere promises to make everyone rich. Christianity is not like winning the lottery. At the same time, it's also important to realize that God who gives riches is the same God who warns against riches. The classic illustration of this has to do with the children of Israel. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, there is that fatal then. It goes like this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The big danger here, beloved, is the danger of forgetting. 
God is warning us here not to forget Him, not to forget where ultimately our prosperity and our plenty come from. It comes down to the popular adage, do not bite the hand that feeds you. But Israel did. The more affluent they became, the more arrogant and forgetful they became. And they're not alone in this. Coming from Canada and going often to China, where a lot of people are still poor and struggling, is a constant reminder. You might ask a constant reminder of what? Well, of the fact that we Christians as a whole, living here in Canada, as well as in the United States of America and in Europe, are in the process of forgetting. In China, believers will make all kinds of sacrifices and go to all sorts of extraordinary efforts so that they can keep growing in the Christian faith. Sitting for hours and days in a cold, unheated classroom is no problem for them. But meanwhile, back in our own country, trying to get a lot of people to go to church even twice on the Lord's Day. Even in a building filled with padded pews and air conditioning and heat has become in a lot of churches a major, major chore or a rarity. Lukewarmness has set in. Complacency is the order of the day. And if you ask, why is that? Well, it's because we are allowing our wealth, our prosperity, and our affluence to go to our heads. We're allowing our affluence to dampen our enthusiasm and our dependence on the Lord. And our wealth and our comforts are causing many to assume we created this. We have always and will always have this. We have no need to worry about anything. We are in control. But what a recipe for disaster. Later on in Deuteronomy, God warns Israel again, and he tells them what are the consequences will be of this arrogance. You'll be cursed in the city, and you'll be cursed in the country. Their food, their crops, their herds, their bodies, and more will all be cursed. You see, it is a most dangerous thing to forget. To forget the Lord who gives you life, who crowns you with health, who blesses your labors, who lavishes freedom upon you. So what then? is the way forward. 
in the midst of all of our blessings as well as all of our dangers, how then shall we live? The answer, beloved, lies in living a grateful life. Now, you might wonder, what does that involve? A number of things, biblically speaking, come to mind. First of all, a grateful life is an honest life. A life filled with integrity. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism, as it explains the Eighth Commandment, gives us a long list of dishonest practices, wicked schemes, false weight, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, usury, or loan sharking. And no doubt if the Catechism were being written today, we would add things to the list like tax evasion, bribery, embezzlement, think of Bernie Madoff, internet scams, and so forth. A fool and his money are soon parted. That's the saying. But the reality is that these days an honest man and his money too are soon parted because of the proliferation of all kinds of crooked schemes. Well, now in such a world, believers, you and I, need to stand out in terms of our use of money, in terms of our business dealings, in terms of how we go around with one another financially, we need to stand out. We need to be a witness to God's standard of honesty and holiness and integrity. And secondly, also, a grateful life is a caring life. Here I'm thinking of the next question and answer 111 of the Catechism where it it gives you the positive side of the Eighth Commandment. And, And what's that positive side all about? Well, it's about one's neighbor and the well-being of one's neighbor. The Catechism is saying neighbors are not targets. They're not opportunities to cheat and to defraud and to steal. Now, neighbors are to be loved financially as well. The standards I want applied to me, I should apply to them. The good that I appreciate is the same kind of good that I should lavish upon them. Yes, and that applies especially to those in need. I don't think there's any doubt in the scriptures that God has a soft spot for, for the needy. How often does he not remind the people of Israel not to neglect the widow, the orphan, and the refugee in the land? And indeed, one of the reasons why they're all sent into exile is precisely because they neglected this aspect. Instead of helping the poor... They exploited them. They drove them even deeper into the dirt. They bought and sold them for a pair of sandals. They increased their suffering. And may that sad history teach us. May it remind us that we need to have hearts full of 
compassion. But then, beloved, if a grateful life is an honest life and a caring life, it's also a generous life. Now, it has to be said that often in the scriptures, you and I are reminded to give in terms of the gifts and talents we have received. But, you know, here in the context of the Eighth Commandment and Lord's Day 42, the, the stress is not so much on abilities as it is on material gifts and giving. It has to do with our generosity. You know, all through the Old Testament, God was trying to do a lot of things with his people. But one of the things he was trying to do was to turn this society of people, this covenant people, into a people of generosity. He, the ever-generous God, was trying to teach his children to be generous to others as well as to him and to his causes. The people were taught that through their tithes, they were setting something aside for the poor and the needy as well as for God. And you know, the same kind of stress you can find back in the New Testament. How often, how often does the Lord Jesus Christ not preach and teach about money and about giving? How quickly deacons are appointed when the giving and distributing structure in the New Testament church does not function as it should. How swift and severe God is to punish Ananias and Sapphira for their lying and pretending to be generous when actually they were a pair of tightwads. In short, God's people have always been called upon to be a generous people. And the Apostle Paul makes this quite clear in his letters to the church at Corinth when he stresses that God loves a cheerful giver. And God blesses them. You know, in that connection, there's a basic lesson to be learned. There are some believers who know how to keep their wallets closed or barely, barely open. When the church can't meet its budget, that's a problem for other members to take care of. When the poor come calling or disaster strikes, there may be a loony or a toony there somewhere to spare, perhaps. In short, some people who claim to be believers, have no money for God, even though God has given them any, everything, and very little for the needs of others. But then, so often, you take a closer look at these same people and their lives, and what do you see? You see financial struggles. You see work problems, business problems, you see unhappiness, you see discontent. And you know there's a connection. 
Scripture says there is a connection. Paul says there's a connection between money and misery. If you're not generous to God and to others, don't expect God to be generous to you and to bless you. If you're miserable, one place you should look is at your charitable donations. And if there's nothing there to look at, then hopefully somewhere the lights will go on in your head and in your heart. Tight-wad Christians are a contradiction. Square pegs in round holes. And so a grateful life is an honest, caring, generous life. And one more thing, it's a humble, humble life. When you look at God, what do you see? Beloved, you should see the abundance of his gifts and the magnitude of his blessings. When you look at Jesus Christ, what do you see? You should see him as giving himself fully and completely for you, even to the point of death and death on the cross itself. He truly is God's greatest gift. You see, here we are on the receiving end of so much. So much grace. So much love. So much mercy. So much compassion. And so many blessings. Taken together, it should do something in us and to us. It should make as humble. We deserve wrath, dismissal, judgment. But instead we get forgiveness, righteousness, and life in Christ. Oh, and what a life. And what a future. It's enough to make one cry. To make one cry tears of joy and amazement. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.